Let's look with me in Philippians, please, chapter 1, as we continue our study through Paul's epistle to the church at Philippi. We'll begin reading where we left off on last week, so we'll pick up in verse 12, and we'll read through verse 26. We will not make it through this entire portion of the text this morning, but we will begin in verse 12 and read through verse 26, making up this portion of the text of this division of the book of Philippians. Look with me, verse 12, please. But I would, ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ, even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor, yet what I shall choose I wot not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Let's bow for prayer again. Father, we thank you for your word and for the privilege to open it this morning to proclaim and declare its truth. We thank you again for these who gather together this morning with the intent and purpose that they might see the revealed Christ from your precious word. So I pray that we might be faithful to the message that is before us as we study, as we proclaim its truth. And I pray for every individual here that our hearts might be receptive and that we would have minds that are cleared from the distractions and the clutter that seems to fill our lives daily And Lord, for these moments that we would completely be consumed in the truth of who Christ is and the wondrous work of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the tremendous commission that's been given to us as your church, as stewards of this gospel. So may we faithfully commit ourselves to the truth and study and understanding of your word and may your spirit provide us the discernment which only he can. And again, we ask, Lord, for every individual here as well as I stand before these this congregation to declare your truth. May the very words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O God. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you and be seated. Over the past two weeks, we have concentrated our study on verses 3 through 11 of this uh, first chapter of Paul's epistle to the Philippians. And last week, we examined Paul's statement in verse 5 concerning the fellowship of of the gospel. And we discovered within verses 7 through 11 specifically that Paul identified what constitutes fellowship of the gospel by 
explaining or detailing the work of God um, as He is performing and perfecting this work within those who are partakers in the fellowship of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we have discovered, Paul lays the foundation for the emphasis of this epistle in his prayer for these Philippian believers as detailed in verses 9 through 11. Chapter 1, verse 9, And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. And I said to you that really the emphasis of this entire epistle of Paul is that these believers at Philippi might prove what things are excellent. They might understand that which has been tested to be superior and embrace that which is superior in contrast to all other things which are inferior. And we understand that the statement approve things that are excellent is, means to regard something as genuine or worthy based on testing or on it being proven. And so Paul explains he desires that the Philippian believers recognize and regard the things which are proven to be excellent, that which is proven to be of considerable value, distinctive, and superior. We see an example of that which is excellent in Paul's declaration, that he has forsaken all inferior, inferior things for that which is excellent or superior to all other things. In Philippians 3, 7, and 8, I've mentioned this the last few weeks to you, but what things were gained to me, Paul says, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency, which means superior in value or to be of surpassing or exceptional value, for the excellency, for the superiority of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. So here Paul is explaining in detail in chapter 3 again that he says everything is inferior to knowing Jesus, to growing in the knowledge of Christ. And he's again is not referencing, I need to mention this because we speak of knowing Christ, and so many times that statement is only perceived to mean salvation in the meaning the moment of the new birth. Oh, do you know Jesus Christ as Savior? But this is not what Paul is talking about here. That's the beginning, but not what he is referencing. He's not speaking of coming to know Jesus as Savior. He's saying coming to understand and know him after salvation, to know the fullness of the person of Christ. He is the fullness. Listen what, listen what Paul says in Colossians. He says that we are complete in him and that Christ is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Do you understand what he stated? That in Jesus Christ is the fullness of God. And so there's so much more to know of Christ than only I am not going to hell, I'm going to heaven. There's so much more to knowing him than just the moment of the new birth. This is the beginning, but there's so much more to know. And Paul is explaining that here, even in his own life. Our focus last week was on Paul's explanation of the meaning and importance of the fellowship of the gospel, in which we observe the following truths. In verse 5, of course, if you look back with me, he says, verse 4, Always in every prayer of mine that they were, he says, for you all making requests with joy, and this is the reason, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And then the next verse, of course, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So here Paul is explaining, of course, that he gives God, thanks God upon every remembrance of them, and, and he says that he is thankful for them. They are always in his prayers, and he, his requests are made known unto the Lord on their behalf with great joy. And the reason why is because of their fellowship in the gospel, which has been consistent they have been a participant and participating in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, from the moment of their salvation, the new birth. 
continually up to this point. And then Paul goes on again to express the confidence he has, not in them as a church, but he says, my confidence is in that God, Christ, will complete this work which he has begun, being confident of this very thing, that he, God the Father, which hath begun a good work in you, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So God is going to be faithful to complete this work in the person of his Son, which he has begun. And then Paul comes to verse 7, and, and he says then that there is fellowship in the gospel, and it provides unity within the body of Christ. So this fellowship of the gospel in verse 5 is what Paul is emphasizing in the following verses. And he says that the fellowship in the gospel, it, it produces or provides this unity within, the Christ, within Christ's body or the church. Verse 7, even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. Paul's thoughts to the Philippian church were precious to him due to the relationship he shared with them in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we've explained that. The Macedonian call, Philippi was a, a chief city or colony within Macedonia, and the Macedonian call came to Paul when he was desiring to preach in Asia Minor or otherwise, and God sends him over to Macedonia specifically to proclaim the gospel, which would have included the church at Philippi. Then also we find at least two accounts of Scripture where it was the church at Philippi, those in Macedonia, that met the needs of Paul as he labored in the ministry, even to the Corinthian church. He says that there were others in Macedonia who supplied my need when I was ministering to you when you should have been doing this. So this church had a special place in the heart of Paul for very many reasons, and we find that to be true as he listed. Philippians 4.10 explains this, 2 Corinthians 11.9. We see this, that this Philippian church had taken uh, partnership, fellowship, and participation in the gospel work, the gospel ministry that Paul had been commissioned to. Number two, fellowship in the gospel produces godly affection within the body of Christ. Verse eight, for God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Those who are unified in the purpose of the gospel of Jesus Christ will also have a godly affection produced by the unity of the Spirit of Christ. When we are joined together in the same purpose of the gospel, in the unity of the God's Spirit, God's love will flow from us to one another within this fellowship of the gospel, which Jesus said is an identifying mark in the life of his disciples. In the gospel according to John, John 13, 35, you know this verse, Jesus says, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Then third, fellowship in the gospel cultivates spiritual growth within the body of Christ. Verses 9 and 10, And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in the knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Paul exhorts these believers to continue in love, that it may abound more and more in knowledge and judgment, which the word judgment here means discernment as it is used in this verse. And it is in and by the continued increase of our knowledge and discernment of God, who he is, as expressed in his word, and experienced in the fellowship of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that genuine spiritual growth occurs. It's very interesting to me today that people will do all sorts of things with an intent to, uh, a desire, a claim desire, an attempt to grow spiritually, when the spiritual growth is a byproduct of our fellowship in the gospel of Jesus Christ as we are in unity with it and, in it and by his spirit who dwells within us. Number four, Fellowship in the gospel yields righteous fruit within the body of Christ. Being filled, verse 11, with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. Those who are participants in the gospel of Christ will bear spiritual fruit of righteousness. 
So we've seen, last, last week we discovered through these four uh, elements within these verses, that it is through the fellowship of the gospel that God is first providing unity in his church through the fellowship of the gospel. Second, God is providing or producing godly affection within his church through the fellowship of the gospel. Third, God is cultivating spiritual growth in his church through the fellowship of the gospel. And then fourth, God is producing spiritual fruit in his church through the fellowship of the gospel. So while our study last week revealed Paul's emphasis, which we just reviewed, on the fellowship of the gospel, within this next portion, which we've read this morning, of this chapter of Philippians chapter 1, Paul now turns our attention to the furtherance of the gospel, as indicated in verse 12. Notice, But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. And the noun furtherance here literally means progress. So Paul is saying, everything that has happened unto me, I want you to be aware, you Philippians, be aware that everything that has happened to me has happened for this purpose, that the gospel might progress, that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Christ might further be furthered and might progress. The fellowship shared in the gospel will always result in the furtherance or the progress of the gospel. Listen, again, we don't have to attempt to come together to find things in which we can be unified. We don't need to come together and attempt to find things in which we can say, oh, well, we agree on this or we agree on that. What we need to recognize is that God has already provided us unity in his spirit, and it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that not only gives us unity, but is the very means by which God is furthering the gospel. So through the fellowship of the gospel... The furtherance of the gospel is being accomplished. And we see that consistently in the scriptures. The gospel meaning the good news, of course in this context, the good news of Jesus Christ, spreads like a wildfire both among and through those who are in fellowship together in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, it is through the fellowship of the gospel that God has purposed to further or progress the gospel in the world. Years ago when we began our study of the book of Acts, and that's been some years ago, and then progressed to the book of Romans, I mentioned to you that Romans is the gospel explained, whereas the book of Acts is the gospel proclaimed. And while the early church was not without its problems or without its challenges, without its persecution, God's word was propagated and the word of God prevailed all the same. Let me give you some examples of that. When the church experienced conflict due to the lack of care for the Grecian widows, the church responded in a godly manner, and we are told that God's word increased in Acts 6, 7. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. In the face of persecution... The word of God was preached, Acts 8, 3, and 4. As for Saul, the same Paul writing this epistle now, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women committed them to prison. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Interesting thought here that you need to be aware of before we go any further. You remember in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3 and so on, the church at Jerusalem grew exponentially. We know that thousands... 
added to the church in one day. But it's interesting to understand that that church did not remain large in its size. The apostles were at Jerusalem. The church began at Jerusalem. But then, as Acts 1.8 says, Jesus said, you shall be my witnesses in, in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And God brought persecution, allowed persecution into the church at Jerusalem for the sole purpose that the church would be scattered. But notice this, because they were in the fellowship of the gospel, the persecution did not hinder the propagation of the gospel, but the persecution was the means by which the gospel was propagated. You can join together in many causes, you can join together in many events, you can join together in many ministries, quote-unquote, or many efforts, But hear me, if you are not truly in the fellowship of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as soon as persecution comes, as soon as opposition arises, as soon as there is conflict, you will find that people will run in fear rather than being planted. And it's interesting because when we find that they were scattered, the word scattered that's used in Acts, that they were scattered abroad, it literally means dispersed. Or as you would consider seed being sown, as seed is scattered about, as one would throw the seed onto the prepared soil. So God was taking his church, multiplying it in Jerusalem, allowed persecution to come in, not for the destruction of the church, but for the propagation of the gospel. But let us be aware of something too that's not much consideration given too often, I'm afraid. The church at Jerusalem never recovered from the persecution that came upon it, numerically speaking. But the apostles remained there, and it became a hub, if you will, in which other elders would go to Jerusalem to seek counsel from the apostles concerning the establishing of the churches in the New Testament. But it's interesting that that church never recovered numerically, but that was the total purpose and intent God had for multiplying the church to the point that it was that it might be dispersed, and in the dispersing and scattering of these believers who are in fellowship, in the fellowship of the gospel, that the gospel might then be propagated into the world. It's so interesting to me today. None of us, of course, want persecution. I confess, I don't want to suffer. You don't want to suffer. But we have a, a very different view of persecution than did the early church and than did the apostles. In fact, we're going to look a little into that in a moment, the sufferings and identity with Christ. But hear me out. Rather than us praying, oh God, don't let us suffer, don't let us suffer, maybe we should be praying, Lord, if it is our suffering that is required for the propagation of the gospel, then provide us your grace and gird us up and make us bold in the fellowship of the gospel so that the word of God and the gospel might be propagated and proclaimed. God is performing a work in and through His church. And hear me, you need to remember something. God never said, the Word of God never tells us that we are going to be comfortable. And I'm going to tell you, the church in America has become extremely comfortable. But God never said the church would be comfortable. He said that we would be comforted. And comforted implies that there is a problem or persecution or suffering or or oppression or that there is, is uneasiness. And so, comforted implies that there's a reason for which comfort is necessary. Comfortable is what we've tried to become, but that's not what God promised He would be. He would comfort and we would be comforted. And so, we find in this early church 
that God grew the church and it prospered greatly in number and in size only to then be spread out, only to be scattered so that the word of God might be propagated. After Peter was imprisoned, then released by the angel, and Herod was destroyed by the Lord, God's word continued to multiply, Acts 12, 24. But the word of God grew and multiplied. After Paul had cast out evil spirits, people forsook their curious arts, they burned their books, they confessed their wickedness, and the word of God prevailed, the word says, Acts 19, 20. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Once again, Paul stated in verse 12, notice with me in Philippians 1, but I would you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. Now, in this verse, Paul not only spoke of the gospel's progress, but also made a reference to the means by which the Lord had progressed the gospel when he spoke and said, the things which happened unto me. This statement by Paul is a loaded statement. As I previously mentioned, this epistle is one of the four prison epistles. The four prison epistles include Ephesians, Philippians, here, Colossians, and Philemon. So we must first recognize that Paul writes this epistle from prison. And when Paul makes this reference concerning the things which happened unto me, this would most certainly include his imprisonment, but it was not limited to his imprisonment alone. Paul goes on to continue in verse 13 and states, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. Now we must remember that Paul was no stranger to the suffering uh, of sufferings of Christ and sufferings for the cause of Christ in the gospel. Again, I, I refer to this often, but in Acts we're told, of course in Acts chapter 9, if you recall, at the conversion of, of Saul, of Paul, we're told that Ananias, God, the Lord appeared to Ananias and he says, Ananias, you know, uh, you're Saul, you're going to meet with Saul and, and this is what you're going to do. And Ananias says, Lord, are, are you sure? <laughs> He's like, I've heard many horrible things about this man. And it was true. Paul was wicked. All in, the zealot, all in his zeal, religious zeal, he was very wicked and against God, anti-Christ, obviously. And yet we find that when Ananias brings this up unto the Lord and says, Now, Lord, are, are you sure that this is the man you're talking about? This is the one that you want me to minister to? And the Lord says this to Ananias. He says, Go, for he is, Paul is a chosen vessel unto me, and I will show him what great things he must suffer for my name's sake. So the Lord says to Ananias, Paul is chosen of me, and I'm going to show him how he will suffer greatly. I'm going to demonstrate through him tremendous suffering for my name's sake. Paul was not a stranger to suffering. Paul was beaten. Paul was shipwrecked. Paul was in prison. Paul was bound. You, Paul suffered greatly for the cause of Christ. Paul suffered tremendously for the gospel's sake. And so we must recognize that when Paul says these things happen unto me, sure, this included his imprisonment as we see even in verse 13. But it's not limited to this one imprisonment this one time, but rather it has to do with his entire life and suffering for the cause of the gospel. So again, verse 13, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. Paul, again, being not a stranger and suffering for the gospel and identifying the sufferings of Christ, he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 7 through 10. Consider what I say, and the Lord give thee understanding in all things. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Verse 9, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer even unto bonds, but the word of God is not bound. 
Therefore, I endure all things for the elect's sake, sakes, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Notice, despite Paul's bonds, as he says in 2 Timothy 2, and even though he was limited by the bonds which held him captive, you must remember that we are even told that there were, when Paul was under house arrest, that he still ministered to those who would come in unto him, but he was bound, he was limited. Paul was in prison, literally in bonds, not just figuratively speaking. So here Paul is in chains, if you will, or in, in bonds, unable to move about freely, unable to go where he wanted to go, unable to minister as he desired deeply to minister. So here, Paul, we must recognize, you need to understand this, this man is in prison. And you say, oh, but yeah, Paul's still minister. Of course he's still minister. But he is bound. He is limited. He is not able to do as he desires to do. And when I say that, I don't mean in a selfish manner. He wants to proclaim the gospel. He wants to minister to the churches that he has established. He wants to edify. He wants to comfort. He wants to instruct. He wants to teach. He desired to evangelize the Gentile world as God had commissioned him to do. So this is Paul's tremendous desire, and yet here he is sitting in a prison chained. Paul is limited. He's not able to do what he desires to do. But nonetheless, notice this. Though he was bound, though he was limited, the word of God was not limited. Notice what he says again in verse 9. Wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer. He didn't say I am an evildoer. That's not what he's saying. He's, saying, he's not saying I suffer uh, trouble because I've done evil. He is saying I suffer as though I am an evil man doing evil things when all I'm doing is proclaiming Christ and the gospel. That's the context here. And he goes on to say, but, notice here, but the word of God is not bound. What a statement. Paul's saying I am bound, I am limited, I am not free, I'm not able to do what I would like to, but hear me, regardless of all that, God's word is not bound. And God's word is not limited. The gospel, though I am in prison, the gospel is not imprisoned with me. And Paul recognized that. Hence, Paul writes in verses 12 and 13 that because his ministry while in prison, although we understand Paul's ministry being in prison... Yet, the Word of God, Paul understood, recognized, or he recognized it extended beyond himself and that it was being effectively used by God while he was in bondage. And then he writes in verses 12 and 13, But I would you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. Paul continues to explain how his bonds have furthered the gospel, and once again emphasizes the importance of the fellowship of the gospel in relation to its propagation. Notice verse 14. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, we have to understand this. Paul is saying that the bonds, his bonds, and his imprisonment caused those in the fellowship of the gospel to become all the more bolder, bolder in its progress. Now, while one would think naturally that persecution would have hindered the gospel and that the people would fear and they, that they too would be imprisoned or even their lives be taken from them, as was Paul in prison and eventually his life taken from him, the uprising against the gospel, the persecution against the gospel, and those who propagate the gospel, those who declare the gospel, 
did just the opposite. Now, look, this is key to last week, the fellowship of the gospel, participation in the gospel, understanding our part in the commission of God concerning the gospel. If we are not in the fellowship of the gospel, then this will not be true of us. Because we don't want to suffer. We don't want persecution. And here's why. Because it hurts. It affects us negatively. We don't like that. But here's what we must understand. Those in fellowship of the gospel recognized and understood that Christ, the cause of Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is a much greater cause than were they. The only reason they're willing to suffer and even go to death for the cause of Christ and the gospel is because they saw that this is bigger than they are. This is much bigger than themselves. And if you're not in the fellowship of the gospel as biblically defined, then you're never going to see anything bigger than yourself. Because our tendency, our sinful fleshly desire and inherent sinful nature is to look out for number one. Why do we even say it like that? Look out for number Do you realize what you're saying? I am above all others. That's exactly what you're saying. And we look out for number one. But if you are in the fellowship of the gospel, you recognize that you are not number one with the exception of being number one deserving of God's wrath, number one deserving of eternal condemnation, number one not deserving of grace, not deserving mercy. That's the only, Paul said he was the chief, but he said chief of sinners. And so we must recognize that the fellowship of the gospel brings us into the unity of the fellowship of Christ and through the Spirit. And in recognizing the fellowship and unity of the Spirit in the fellowship of the gospel, we understand that we have a privileged part within this great commission of the gospel and that this is bigger than are we. And that's exactly what Paul is declaring what he saw. And he says here that they waxed confident by his bonds. Those who were in the fellowship of the gospel were not casual in their association with Christ or his suffering. We live in a day in which it is just a casual thing to say, oh, I know Jesus. Oh, I am follow God. Oh, I love the Lord. And it's said with such, in such a casual manner. But those who are in fellowship of the gospel don't view any of this in a casual sense. As we previously discovered, the word fellowship in this passage means participation. And this participation is not something that is picked through as a buffet line might be, but if one is in participation of the gospel, or with the gospel, and in the gospel, then they are in participation in every part. Paul explained in chapter 3 of this epistle, chapter 3, verse 10, that I may know him, Christ, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. I can never quote this verse without saying this, because it's a very well-known verse, and yet people really neglect to understand what they've been reading or saying. Everyone will confess, oh, that I may know him, and the power of resurrection. Everyone talks about that, but they never stop to consider what it means. To know Christ, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection. To know resurrection power, you must first die. You die before you are resurrected. And so when Paul says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection... And notice what he says, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. 
Peter also wrote of the sufferings associated with Christ in the gospel in 1 Peter 2.21. He said, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. 1 Peter 4.12-16, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. Now this sounds a little odd, doesn't it? Because Peter's saying, okay, first of all, you're going to suffer, and when you do suffer, don't count it odd or strange. Don't think it's, it's peculiar that you would suffer. And then he explained previously, though, the reason this is so. In chapter 2.21, he had stated... That here and two were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us. He, leaving an example, that we should follow his steps. Of what? Suffering. So a believer is going to suffer. Paul said in, in Timothy, did he not? Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And the word persecution there does not necessarily, again, mean that you're being beaten with a cat of nine tails or a whip, or you're being scourged, though it could be, but it means oppressed. So you're going to be oppressed as one who lives godly. You're going to be oppressed. And Jesus explained that to his disciples when he told them. He said, don't think it's strange if the world hate you. Remember, if it hates you, that it hated me first. And the whole point there is, the only reason the world has a reason to hate us is because they see Jesus in us. And Jesus is saying, they hate you because they hate me, and if my life is demonstrated through you, that's going to rise hatred up against you because of me. And so Paul explains that, Peter explains that. And he says here that Christ suffered, we follow in his steps. He said we are to rejoice that we are partakers of Christ's suffering. Partakers, such as participants, such as fellowship in the sufferings of Christ. 1 Peter 5, 1 and 3, he says, The elders which are among you I exhort, whom also an elder. Peter says, I'm an elder, and the elders that are among you I'm exhorting you, and a wit I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. Now notice what he says here. I'm an elder, you are elders. The main commission here is feed the flock of God. Clearly demonstrated and explained. But notice he includes in this, I have seen the sufferings of Christ. I have been a partaker in the sufferings of Christ, he says. And he also goes on to say, a witness of his sufferings and a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Peter is showing us here, of course, that if we are going to, uh, if we are going to rejoice in the glory of God, then we rejoice as well in the sufferings of Christ, and identity in the sufferings, and with the sufferings of Jesus. And then he says, being in samples to the flock, being an example to the flock. Listen, if, if, you, if you allow, in submission to the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in you, Christ to live his life through you, as we've just studied for uh, a year, two years through Ephesians. I am in Christ, He is in me, as He is living His life in me and through me. 
the world is not going to be receptive of Jesus. And by the way, another great error within the church today is attempting to make the gospel unoffensive and attempting to present themselves in an unoffensive manner. Now look, you don't go out. We are not called to go out to stir up hatred and stir up anger within the world. That's not the calling. But you must understand that Jesus Himself is the rock of offense, as we're told in Scripture. And that the Gospel is offensive. And people don't understand the offense of the Gospel. How is it offensive? Well, that's because the Gospel has been perverted today and watered down to not be the actual true Gospel, that it doesn't seem to be offensive at all. And there's no reason that it's offensive. Oh, do you want to go to heaven? Sure. Then you know, say this prayer and ask Jesus in your heart. And well, What's offensive about that? Nothing. The offense of the Gospel is in the fullness of the Gospel. And here's the Gospel. We are condemned. And there's nothing we can do about our state of condemnation. We can't help ourselves. We cannot improve ourselves. We cannot fix ourselves. We cannot do anything that's going to make God happy. We cannot do anything that's going to please God. We cannot do anything that's going to make God look and smile in our direction. We are a hopeless, helpless people. And when you tell someone, look, you are under the wrath of God. You're not in the love of God. You are under the wrath of God. And you will experience the eternal wrath of God. And here's the terrible news. You can't do anything about it. That's offensive. Here's the offense. I can't fix me. Everyone wants to fix themselves, and you can't fix yourself spiritually. And that's the offense. But here's the good news, and this is what makes the good news good news. We are in such a terrible condition, and there's nothing we can do to fix it and fix ourselves and help ourselves. But we don't have to. Because God has provided Christ on our behalf that we might be reconciled, restored to fellowship and relationship with Him. And that is wonderful news. But the good news is preceded by the awful news of our eternally helpless, hopeless condition. And that's offensive. That offends the flesh. That offends people if you tell them that. Because again, oh, you're saying I'm bad? Well, yeah, pretty much. But it's not me saying, it's God who says it. I'm just telling you what God says. We are wicked and there's no help and no hope for us apart from Jesus. But that's the good news. So hence we have the gospel, the good news of Christ. So Peter says we are to, as elders, be an example identifying the sufferings of Christ. And here's the point. When you declare the truth of the gospel, men are going to despise you for it. If you go tell them Jesus loves you and you just ask Jesus you want to go to heaven, sure, that's not offensive at all and they're not going to hate you for that. But if you go tell them the truth of the gospel, they will despise you. There is automatic suffering in relation to the gospel of Christ. If Jesus himself suffered, then why would we think that we won't suffer if we are declaring Christ, the same Jesus the world hated? And Peter says, you're you're blessed. You should rejoice when you are partakers. But rejoice, verse 13 of 1 Peter 4, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, Christ, happy are ye. Do you know what the word happy means here? He's not saying, oh, if you rejoice, you're just frolicking among the rose 
gardens. No. He's saying if you are reproached for the cause of Christ, blessed are you. You are blessed if you suffer for Christ. How can we consider that a blessing? Here's why. If you truly understand the fellowship of the gospel, then you understand the fellowship of the gospel is for the sake of the furtherance of the gospel. And you recognize that God has made you a part of this, and it's bigger than you are, and that you desire to know Christ, as Paul said in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. Hear what Paul's saying. Oh, I want my life to be conformed unto the very death of Christ. I want to know Jesus in every way possible in which I can know him, including his resurrection power, including his sufferings, including his death. And Paul says, if I can know Jesus like this, then I am blessed. This is my greatest desire. So Peter, no, no wonder Peter says, but rejoice when you suffer for Christ's sake. And blessed are you if you are reproached for the name and cause of Christ. As demonstrated throughout the book of Acts, in Paul's and Peter's epistles, suffering is not only to be endured, it's not only to be expected within the life of the believer, but suffering is also to be acknowledged as a means by which the Lord is furthering His gospel as we identify in the sufferings of Christ. It is a joy to identify with Christ even in His sufferings, especially when we realize that it is through such suffering that God is furthering His gospel, He is refining His people, and ultimately He is revealing His glory. So, so Paul concludes, I'm going to conclude with this as Paul stated in Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 17 and 18. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Remember, I, I quoted you Acts earlier in reference where the Lord told Ananias concerning Paul, I will show him what, he's a chosen vessel unto me, I will show him what great things he must suffer for my name's sake. So the Lord already said concerning Paul, Ananias, I'm going to cause great suffering to come into the life of Paul, and I'm going to reveal through Paul his, his, his following after Christ and the suffering he will identify with Jesus, the very one he persecuted, meaning his church, now he will identify in his sufferings. And I'm going to show him what great things he must suffer. The same Paul says in Corinthians, our light affliction. It's only for a moment. It's temporal. It's just a moment. It worketh a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. Paul had an eternal perspective, hence he could understand that all this is but for a moment. All this would pass away, but the work that God is accomplishing is eternal, including the furtherance of the gospel. So Paul identified in the sufferings of Christ, and he did so gladly. Peter identified in the sufferings of Christ, and he did so gladly. And if we are in the fellowship of the gospel as biblically defined, then we will also identify in the sufferings of Christ. And Scripture says, blessed are we if we are reproached for Christ's sake. Blessed, happy, blessed are we. Isn't it funny? The life of the believer in Jesus Christ is truly paradoxical. And I mean this, I've said this to you before, but it's truly a paradox from our perspective. Because from a, from a fleshly, physical perspective, 
we think that the more we strengthen ourselves, the stronger we are. But you know what Scripture says? That when we are weak, His strength is made perfect in us. We think the more we fight, the better chance we have to win. But we're told that we are to submit completely to God and that He is our victory. We think that we are to experience life to its fullest, the best we can, experience the most we can. But we're told that we are to die, that we might experience genuine, true life in Christ. We think to be happy means that we have a life of ease and a life without problems, a life without trouble. But the Scripture says that it's when we are reproached for Christ's sake, when we suffer for the cause of Christ, this is a blessing. A friend of mine said this years ago, and I've shared this with many of you who've heard me say this, but just to clarify, a friend of mine said to me years ago, it's kind of like the kids, this perspective is kind of like a child on a, in a play yard on a monkey bars. You know, as kids, we used to do this. I had to hang upside down on monkey bars, and, and immediately you're seeing everything upside down, so immediately you would make the comment, something like this, Hey, everything's upside down. Well, no, everything is not upside down. You're viewing it from an upside-down position. And the reason we think comfort equals blessing rather than suffering is because we're viewing it upside down. We have the wrong perspective. We're viewing it all from a temporal perspective, not an eternal perspective. And everything seems upside down. But Paul and Peter both declare, as we see in Scripture, we see it through the book of Acts, fellowship of the gospel, equals the furtherance of the gospel, but the means by which the furtherance of the gospel is accomplished is through persecution because of the fellowship in the gospel. The Word of God will prevail. The Word of God will multiply and increase. And it's not dependent on our abilities. It's not dependent upon our freedoms. It's not dependent upon how much so the desires of our hearts are being fulfilled. As Paul said, I am bound, but God's word is not bound. So rejoice that you've been made to be in fellowship with the gospel and rejoice that God allows you to be a part of the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ.